If you like this podcast, you're going to really like McClanahan Academy. Head over to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll. It's free of charge. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, I've got nearly 20 classes there available for purchase. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll today and get a real history education. The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 731. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N. McClanahan.com. Wire there. Give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. You can support the show by going to mclanahanacademy.com. Purchase one or 20 classes there or more. I've got more than 20. Of course, all that keeps this content free of charge. And they're great classes. Now, it's November. Christmas is coming up. You want to get gifts for yourself or your loved ones. If you have a Brian McClanahan fan out there, maybe you get them a McClanahan Academy course. And, of course, I am going to be running coupons. So check that email for those coupons so you can get good deals on McClanahan Academy classes this holiday season. Also, if you have a fan... Get them a, my logo on something cool, like uh, you know a T-shirt or a skin for your electronic device or a wall clock. You can do that by clicking on the Shop tab at brianmcclanahan.com. You can also support the show by clicking on the Support tab while you're at brianmcclanahan.com. Click on the heart under this video if you're watching on YouTube. That's a super thanks button. Or go to anchor.fm, and you can subscribe there. As always, though, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Let people know that you like it. Leave it that five-star review. Leave it a text review if you're on YouTube. Leave a comment. That helps the algorithm. And always send me those show requests. You can comment on YouTube if you want and put a show request there. There's lots of ways to send me that show request, but I do want to see what you want to hear. All right. Well, I'm continuing on this theme that I had earlier this week. We started with a piece by Lafayette Lee and then one yesterday on Glenn Elmer's, which I went really long on. So this is going to be a little shorter podcast uh, today. I do want to address Michael Anton tomorrow, which might be a little longer. You see the Straussians are all long-winded. So, uh, But Gottfried gets to the point on some things. And one of the things I want to say about this idea that somehow all of the people on the right, the paleocons or the traditionalists, whatever you want to call us, are Hegelian. This is just completely ridiculous. In fact, it all goes back to saying that John C. Calhoun was Hegelian, which he wasn't. And that's because people have said there's a link between Calhoun and Francis Lieber. Lieber had a very limited correspondence with Calhoun. Calhoun was not a historical determinist um, in any way. I mean, I don't, I don't think you say you can say he was. He certainly rejected uh, parts of the founding. Uh, but to paint Calhoun as a Hegelian is just kind of ridiculous. Now, you know, Richard Hofstetter is called in the Marx of the Master Class, um, and there were these, you know, this idea that Mar- that Calhoun somehow represented uh, this elite planter society within a historicist or Marxian dialectic, right? Somehow that was the case. But I don't think Calhoun ever saw things that there was a, you know, an end of times or something like that. But Now, Calhoun was certainly worried about the destruction of the original Federal Republic through scheming, through innovation, through idealism. And that's, I mean, really the core of this. And so um, he was worried about the effect of idealism, ideology, 
on tradition. Calhoun was a very practical person in a lot of ways. In fact, when you look at his arguments on slavery, and then you go back to what Glenn Elmer said yesterday, that you know the uh, slavery was incompatible with republicanism, Calhoun's response to that, of course, would have been no, and he wrote a lot about republicanism, but not just that. He would said, all right, look, if that's true, <clears throat> if, Repub- if the founding generation was really worried about slavery and republicanism and these kind of things, well then, if it's an evil, as you say it is, an antithesis of republicanism, let's end it right now. He said it in 1837. He said, look, we can end slavery right now. If Congress can pass an unconstitutional bank, if Congress can pass an unconstitutional tariff, if Congress can pass un- unconstitutional federally funded internal improvements, why can't they abolish slavery? If it really is the evil that you say it is, it really is the, the, uh, the bane of republicanism, then we should end it right this second. No longer should it continue in any way in the United States. But of course, no one was willing to do that at that time. Maybe there are a few in Congress, but not many, North and South. So the fact is, Calhoun was pointing this out. We could do it right now, but you see, as I said, action speaks louder than words. And the actions of the founding generation are not in line with idealism in any way. We know this from what happened in the North when it came to things like slavery and racism or racial segregation. We know all that took place in the North. We know that John Adams himself wrote a pro-slavery constitution before that one was scrapped for another one that wasn't explicitly anti-slavery until a court decided that was the case. But Adams actually wrote a pro-slavery constitution and... He was very fond of the British monarchy in a lot of ways. So, again, where does idealism meet up with practice and action? We know in action, the founding generation was far different than what they could have said in you know ideals. So, who are the real historicists? I would say in many ways, it's the Straussians. They're historicists. Um, and because it is going toward the ideal state, right? Now, they would say, well, wait a second here. We don't, we're not utopians. They are utopians. 100%. There's no, there's no question that the, the Straussians are utopians. They would claim they're not, but they are. They would claim that they're against the 1619 Project and its use of the propos- its, its, its historical revisionism, but simply by believing the propositionation, you are believing in historical revisionism. They're the two sides of the same coin. It's all the same. They're just 19th century liberals. And they're saying that's conservative. And that's the real tragedy of anyone adhering to Claremont or the Straussians. You're basically just getting the left light. That's all you're getting. The left light. This is what R.L. Dabney pointed out in the late 19th century. Conservatives like Michael Anton or Glenn Elmers are just... Uh, uh, just accepting discarded leftist talking points. That's all they've done. And, um, you know, they're going to get to the same spot, just slower. Now, of course, Anton and Elmers would say, no, 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 we have to stop right here. Lincoln said we have to stop right here, but that's that's not how it works. You don't get to decide where the, where the bus stops. It's going to keep on going because somebody's going to keep driving that bus. That's the real issue with it all. All right, so this is a piece by Paul Gottfried written October 17th at the at American Greatness. Gottfried is still allowed to write there. And he was responding to an essay that Michael Anton wrote uh, that Anton will respond to, and I'll get into the response tomorrow. But the title of this essay is Historicism and the Right. He says, in the end, the contest between natural rights and historicism on the right may be irrelevant. So 
Let me read this piece. It's shorter, and um, it won't take me you know, as long to get through this. But he says, although not the major theme of Michael Anton's recent essay, his description of there, there of the battle being waged by Claremonters against historicists in the name of natural right awakened my interest. It seems that Anton and his friend R.J. Uh, Pastrito, who now heads the Philadelphia Society, are devoting themselves with special energy to combating the historicist threat from the left. Both hope to enlist the Philadelphia Society for this project. Since I don't expect that organization to allow me to present my case at one of its gatherings, I am quite willing to have my say here. And he says he offended a donor in 19, a neocon donor in 1986, so he's never been invited back. He says, the attempt to depict the current struggle on the right is one between the exponents of Harry Jaffa's interpretation of John Locke and a new generation of historical relativists is reductionist. Until the rise of West Coast Straussians, I can't think of many self-identified conservatives who equated their conservative principles with universal inborn individual rights. In any case, that was not a predominant belief among those of, that, of this persuasion 60 years ago. And he's right about that. Until we had Jaffa. Now, I talked about this, who are the Straussians, a couple of weeks ago. And it was Jaffa that turned the corner. And he started looking at the founding and looking at, more importantly, Lincoln differently. Lincoln became the conservative. The founding became part of Lincoln's agenda. Basically, he was taking the old progressive argument and saying Lincoln was the most Jeffersonian of them all. And this is true. And Lincoln was just a continuation of the founding generation. Lincoln didn't destroy the Constitution at all. Lincoln saved the Constitution. Now, these are remarkable arguments because they're completely devoid of any historical understanding. What's amazing, again, is that when you look at Eric Foner, when you look at Noah Feldman, you look at some of these people on the left, they have conceded Yes, essentially, the original Constitution was not in line with how we interpret the Constitution. But we got the 14th Amendment, which is a new Constitution. We have a new union. We have a new government. Okay? And that's exactly what the Claremonters are doing, though they don't think they're doing that. They think Lincoln's a continuation. He's not. There's a break. There's a departure. And... You, well, they would say, well, see, you're siding with the left on this. You're saying there's a new... Th yeah, there was. It's called the 14th Amendment. Now, we could argue the 14th Amendment was not intended to be interpreted the way that it has been interpreted. But this is where the left is going. This is where they come up with uh, progressive originalism. Now, if by default they're saying the 14th Amendment is progressive, would that not make John Bingham progressive, Thad Stevens, the Republican Party? Would that, that not make them progressive? Of course it would. And they even called out, quote-unquote, conservatives. I mentioned this yesterday. So Godfrey says, If Anton and Pestrito wish to believe differently from me about the na nature of rights, I won't take offense. But their idea about what conservatives are supposed to believe leaves me as an historian and political thinker rather uncomfortable. This is important. But their idea of what conservatives are supposed to believe, that's Glenn Elmer's, hectoring at the end of his piece. Get on board with us. We're the real conservatives. We read it the right way. We read the founding documents the right way. How they're supposed to be read. You get on board with us. So I said at the end of yesterday's podcast, why don't you get on board with us? 
because you're reading them incorrectly, because you're reading the founding generation incorrectly, because you're reading the founding documents incorrectly. Get on board with us? No. Because we don't believe in the Lincoln myth. He says, I am being asked to accept the implausible position that right-wing political polarities come down to a battle between those who accept and those who reject natural rights concepts. If I fail to embrace the Claremont side, and I then supposedly stray to the heresy of historicism, which I am further asked to believe is the dominant position on what now calls itself the right. Again, you can believe there are natural rights. You can believe that some of these natural liberties, you can believe some of these things exist. You can. But the way that the Claremont people frame it, that's the only, th only way you can view the founding, is that way. So he says, most conservatives before the present era would probably, for want of a better term, fall into Anton's historicist camp, like Robert Nisbet, Emmy Bradford, uh, Joseph de Mastre, and Edmund Burke. These thinkers were struck by the inherited particularities of the cultures they observed. Nor did they consider nations to be collections of universal rights-bearing individuals. These conservatives also viewed the historical past, properly understood, as a source of wisdom about politics and morality. It's nice that Gottfried, of course, brings up Bradford, the Southern conservative, because, again, I mentioned with Lafayette Lee, he's a Southern conservative, and that is a distinctive type of conservative. This is where the people, you know, like Anton and, and Elmers and others, they can't get it. Right, it's where it's when uh, William Buckley had uh, George Wallace on his program, and he couldn't really get Wallace. He didn't understand him because Buckley lived in an era of, or in, in his in in the world of ideology. Conservatives believe X, Y, Z, and how can George Wallace call himself a conservative when he believes in, say, old age pensions in the state of Alabama, or uh, paying a lot of money for uh, uh, two year college systems? And things like that. Well, Wallace would say that you know this is he has a he has a responsibility, almost a southern paternalism, to help elevate people out of poverty in his own state, and that could be through education, it could be through pensions, it could be through health insurance, whatever it is. But he has re not not because he's a Marxist, because that wasn't it, but because there is a paternalistic obligation for the people of your state not to be in poverty. And so he would advocate the state, which is completely different from the federal government, doing some of these things. George Wallace was not necessarily interested in implementing these kind of things nationwide. In fact, he made a statement in that debate, I don't really care what happens in New York schools. And Buckley goes, oh, uh, so, so, so you uh, think that uh, you, you don't care? Why don't you care about New York schools? Because uh, he doesn't live in New York. Right? And Wallace, well, I mean, look, yeah, okay. I mean, it's nice to have you know good New York schools, but I live in Alabama, and I want to make sure Alabama is taken care of as governor of Alabama. That debate, but one of these days I'm going to write about that debate because it's so funny. I mean, Buckley doesn't know what to do. He's falling back in his chair. He's just, he's a mess. So Gottfried says, this is not the same as saying these figures relativize moral principles or treated what are clearly outrageous wrongs, like the once prevalent Indian practice of throwing window, widows on the funeral pyres of their dead husbands with absolute equanimity. 
Most of them clung to a belief in moral truth, but did not think that truth required the belief in certain enumerated natural rights that were supposedly applicable to all peoples at all times. Peter Stanless and Francis Canavan, uh, among, uh, among many other scholars, have found a natural law strain running through Burke's orations and writings. I mean, look, if you are a Christian, you're going to believe in certain natural rights. You have to. You have to. But again, expanding that out politically was something else. And in terms of ideology, creating the perfect state, because what Anton and Elmers are essentially arguing is that there's going to be an end and we have to build something new and it has to be built on this concept of natural rights as the perfect state. Okay, I mean, they're utopian in that way. But once you open that <laughs> once you open that Pandora's box, you cannot set the end. You cannot set the limitations on what it means. Now, their response then would be, well then, what do you base it on? You base it on community. You base it on the on the uh, traditions and customs of a community. We may not agree with all of those. I wouldn't want to live in Puritan New England, for example. But for those people, it worked. I wouldn't want to. I mean, it's. It, I wouldn't want to live in many different societies. But for those people, it worked. To criticize them and say they should be doing it this way is very imperialistic. So then, Gottfried says, in any case, we shouldn't assume that the natural rights thinking that has periodically, periodically, I'm sorry, held sway in the Anglo-American world represents a new form of universal religion, particularly not for the traditional right. It is a metaphysical assumption that some Americans invoke to justify particular political freedoms. For me, however, it is not at all necessary to accept Anton's doctrine to value freedom. I'm happy to defend the Second Amendment as an extension of a, not right, to, of a right to self-defense that characterized free individuals going back to medieval England. Like Burke, I understand a fundamental right to be, quote, an entitled inheritance derived from our forefathers and be transmitted to our posterity. Although I could possibly come up with other defenses of the right to bear arms, the conservative one provided by Burke as an historical inheritance and a cherished tradition seems to me the most reasonable, right? So this is where he's appealing to tradition here. There are other traditions that don't fit. The French Revolution, the French government as a unitary state, that's a French tradition. It's French political culture, and it's not English. And thank goodness we have the English tradition, not the French tradition. But when you get all this love affair with natural rights, I mean, is the French Declaration of the Rights of Man and of the Citizen not an extension of natural rights? Would then not the Reign of Terror be an extension of natural rights? I mean, you could take it that far. Now, Anton will talk about political violence tomorrow, and I'll get into that. But. He says, Some of those who founded our country also accepted natural rights in some limited sense and included them in state constitutions as well as in the Declaration. Although I cherish the rights these men wanted to protect, I see no reason to enshrine all of the rhetorical justification they provided. Many of these individuals were also Orthodox Calvinists, as Barry Shane shows in The Myth of American Individualism, and were often quite vocal about their religion, even in civic affairs. While I can respect their theological convictions, I am not required to accept the doctrine of predestination to value the notion of limited constitutional government that these Calvinists defended. Exactly right. 
Barry Shane has also pointed out that this all this uh, love affair on the Straussian, West Coast Straussian uh, right with the Declaration and what it means is a little short-sighted. That the Declaration didn't mean all of that. It's a monumental study, and he really rips them apart. In fact, I don't think the Straussians could really uh, refute any of it. But this is important. He's saying, look, I could come up with natural rights theories or other theories to defend the Second Amendment, but I choose just to say it's about history. It's about the ancient constitutions, the rights of Englishmen, as handed down and then, of course, transmitted to the United States. If you look at the English Bill of Rights, it's in there. right? Of course, they're talking about Protestants against Catholics, but certainly the right to defend yourself. It's not based on a natural right, but based on tradition, custom, and precedent. I mean, when you get into this, you start getting to people like Jeremy Bentham or John Stuart Mill, who would argue essentially the state uh, is the purveyor of rights and that you only have rights because the state says you have them. There are no real natural rights. You live in societies, you live in communities, and the community gets to determine what kind of rights and obligations and privileges you have. The That the the idea of a natural right is a little bit alien. Now, I wouldn't go that far. But the fact is, you know, you do have some of that in a community. And Shane would argue, of course, that there isn't really any, as he said, individualism. It's all communal. Rights are still based on communities and what the communities will tolerate and what they won't tolerate. If they tolerate things, well, then things happen. If they don't tolerate them, they don't. Godfrey says, finally, I find no evidence that my characteristically excuse me, conservative belief about history as a source of moral practice or my efforts to understand rights historically is now a raging obsession among conservative celebrities. Far more common among this breed, as I gather from watching Fox News, are prattling on about American exceptionalism, sh uh, shilling for the GOP, and try to come up with the concept of conservatism that will allow their audiences to escape the bullying of our leftist power brokers. This is something Michael Anton is very concerned about. So were all the Jaffites. They were concerned about being called names. They were concerned about being, nowadays, a steep platform, blacklisted. They're concerned about these things. So that's why they push this natural rights stuff, because they think it frees them from any attacks, which we know the, the left is going to attack anyways. The appeal to history that Anton laments was more common among conservatives 70 years ago than it is right now. It was, in fact, from earlier generations of conservatives that I picked up my historicism and eventually wrote a book defending it. Anton's mistake is to imagine that a choice of what conservatives should believe will come down to one between Harry Jaffa's interpretation of Locke and their hated historicism. At the end of the day, neither may be in the running. So is it really just Harry Jaffa against uh, everyone else? Uh, Clyde Wilson thinks Harry Jaffa is one of those overrated thinkers in uh, American conservative uh, circles. And he just shouldn't even be, nobody should pay attention to this guy. But because of the outsized reach of Claremont, people are paying more attention to Harry Jaffa. And because it creates a palatable conservatism, right? It's, well, we're, we're against all this stuff. We're for this stuff. We're against these bad things that all of these conservatives had said for years. We're for all these good things. They're doing it to deflect, right? Okay. So I mentioned that uh, yesterday was such a long podcast. I was going to go a little shorter 
on this one today, and it is. Uh, but I will wrap up the week with Michael Anton, and I'm not going to do the whole essay because that thing would probably take me like two hours to get through. I'm not going to do the whole essay. I'm going to pick parts out, and we'll talk about them and uh, wrap up the week with this week, bookending it uh, with two interesting pieces. But um, I hope after this week you, you get a better understanding for this war between the paleoconservatives and the, uh, the Straussian Claremonters and all these things. I mean, this is important because this is for the soul of American conservatism. What does it actually mean and where does it go from here? All right. I'll see you tomorrow on The Brian McClanahan Show. See you then. <laughs>